It's great to be here. Did you, did you know that I'm an Anglican? <laughs> what would you have come if you'd known? It's very brave of you. Uh, you are very like Anglicans because you all get here late. Um, <laughs> so we drove into the car park about ten past ten. There was no one there. I said to my wife, there's no one coming. They've told them that I'm preaching. And she said, no, they'll just come late. And she was right as usual. Um, uh, it's good to be here, great to be with my family and uh, my brother's here as well. Uh, just in case we talk later, Ben is uh, younger than me, he doesn't look younger than me, but he is younger than me. Um, he's here, by the way. Does he come often? Did you tell me? <laughs> my, uh, he was later than anybody else. My mum always says, is Ben doing all right? I said, well, I'll find out on Sunday. Um, so speak to me. I have actually signed him up for all the rotors, so you're on the... <laughs> You're on the mowing next week. <laughs> right, there are Bibles in front of you, I, I know, so please uh, take one of those. Uh, we really need to, to follow these verses together. It's on page 1108. <coughs> it's Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. There's some water here. Am I, am I allowed to drink this, or is it, is it holy water? <laughs> Who's in charge here? Can I drink this? very much. Been there for years, isn't it? <laughs> Has anyone got a sieve? No. Right. So, Ephesians chapter 2, uh, verses 1 to 10. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you've been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Thanks be to God for his word to us. So do keep that open in front of you. <coughs> um, I think in these uh, letters of Paul particularly, it's important that we follow the thought pattern as he writes it for us. Uh, so uh, do keep it open in front of you, uh, and that will help you to um, uh, stay awake. I watch the football as well, and I won't be falling asleep, so you've got no excuses either. Um, I wonder kind of how you would feel about your biography being written. I wonder if you're someone with a big ego, whether you actually dream of that. 
or if you're a bit more of a kind of uh, quieter, laid uh, in the background kind of person, whether you actually dread uh, that kind of attention. Uh, but the biography would be written, and uh, I guess for most of us, uh, the sales uh, the sales numbers would not be particularly great. Uh, maybe you prefer to read and to write an autobiography have a little bit of control over what was written. Maybe there'd be bits that you'd leave in, bits that you'd put out, uh, leave out. Uh, maybe you'd thought about that, maybe not. But let me tell you, as we read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, these tell us more about you and I than any biography could ever tell us. These verses drip with God's truth about your life and my life. Truth about a number of things. Truth about... Our past. Uh, Truth about the deepest change that can ever be affected in the life of a human being. Truth about now. Truth about the purposes that God has for us (coughs) in the world. So you might kind of get from that already that this is quite important. God's truth about your past. God's truth about the biggest change that can ever happen in the life of a human being. And God's truth about why we're here. The purpose that he's given for our lives. So let me encourage you to focus this morning. There are many, many things going on in the world. Uh, We do think far too much about football. And I put myself in that category. uh, Even as a Norwich City supporter. Depression overwhelms me. Uh, but we, we do think uh, about football. We do have bigger picture things, much more important things about <coughs> what goes on in the world in Iraq, in the Ukraine at the moment. There are huge things that occupy our minds. But let me just ask you this morning, come to this. Come and see these words of the Apostle Paul. It's in the context, by the way, and that's always important just to to get hold of as we do kind of one sermon on a part of a whole Bible book. It's in the context of a letter about the church. I don't know what you think about the church. This is your church. I wonder what you kind of think as you get out of bed on a Sunday morning and... You drive to church and there are people running and keeping fit. There are people cycling. There are curtains closed. Many people still in bed. It was very quiet this morning. You think, oh, it's church. Is there kind of a bit of a, do I have to? Maybe. Well, it was Noel Edmonds, wasn't it, who said that church is the most boring experience on offer. Which I thought was a bit rich coming from the man who gave us Mr. Blobby. But you see, Ephesians actually identifies and destroys the lie that we are often often tempted to believe about church. Church is not an add-on optional extra for the Christian. Church is central to the purposes of God. And if we are Christian, church must be central to our lives. Uh, Paul will say later, have a look at chapter (coughs) 3, verse 10. This is an extraordinary verse that at some stage I hope you'll get the chance to look at. Uh, In chapter 3 verse 10, Paul tells us what God's purpose for the church is. God's intent, chapter 3 verse 10, was that now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms. 
according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So Paul's idea is that in the heavenly realms that we can't see, there is a kind of conflict, a battle raging between good and evil, between God and the devil, and all the devil's kind of um, rulers and authorities, as he calls them. And and Paul's point is this, and as the, the kind of curtain is drawn back, and the devil sees the church, that that is conclusive proof, or it's a reminder of his past defeat and a reminder of his future destruction. That is the purpose of church, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10, that as the devil looks at your church, Lim Baptist Church, as the devil looks at our church in Winsford, as the devil sees God's people uniting, Loving one another, serving one another, sins forgiven, dealing with all the kind of stuff that goes on in our lives, praying as you prayed, singing as you sang. As as the devil sees all of that, he bows his head in defeat. He remembers the cross. He's reminded of his future destruction as he sees the power of God to unite people like this. It's extraordinary. Don't play fast and loose with church is really Paul's point in Ephesians. Central to God's purposes, therefore it must must be central to the life of the Christian. It is not an optional add-on extra. As a pastor, that is the biggest battle I face week after week after week to convince Christians that this is not an optional extra. Central to all that we do in our lives. So in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, then, what is happening? You see, we mustn't think that this kind of famous purple passage in Ephesians is kind of something that Paul kind of cuts and pastes from his computer that really hasn't anything to do with the letter that he's writing. These verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, are completely Ephesian in their purpose. And they kind of will come in it from this angle. The idea is this, you see, you are a danger to the church. And I am as well. If we don't understand the heart of the gospel, we will damage the church. And that's why Paul writes as he does. So let me give you three points. Firstly, verses 1 to 3. If I don't understand my past, I could damage the church. If I don't understand my past then I could damage the church. Think of the biography that's being written about you. Think of the autobiography you might want to write about yourself. And you're listing the achievements, your, <coughs> the, the, the resume of all that you've done and all that you are, all that you've been, the things that your mother might mention or might have mentioned at the coffee morning when someone says, oh, tell me about so-and-so. Well, you know, he's this and he's that. and Oh, he's a wonderful this. Uh, my mother's struggling to find things to say, but she'll talk about Ben. Um, <laughs> Not, not that I'm bitter about that or anything. Uh, but you see, wait a minute, wait a minute. Stop thinking about your mum. Think now, what does God say about my life? Well, verses 1 to 3, or what he would say. You see, I am a Christian now, yes, of course. But notice this as Paul writes these verses. I haven't always been a Christian. I wasn't born a Christian. I guess you don't maybe face these uh, conversations as much as I do in the kind of Church of England kind of setting where people think that, that when they see the kind of dog collar walking around the corner that I occasionally wear, uh, they, they, they kind of, there's a panic that goes on inside and I must say something about being a Christian. 
And I've had people say all kinds of things. I'm a Christian because I give blood. I'm a Christian because I was baptized 50 years ago. Uh, someone said I'm a Christian because my grandmother gave some money to the church clock. You see, uh, but you, no, no, no. You weren't born a Christian. You have to become a Christian. You might have been brought up in a Christian family. You might have been born into a, into a country where Christianity is the worldview behind so much of our past. But you have to become a Christian. And that is what has happened to these people in Ephesians. You can read back in Acts chapter 19 where Paul has that uh, typically kind of roller coaster visit to, to Ephesus. There's a riot and he gets thrown out of the synagogue and he, he preaches there week by week for three years and some people hate what he says, other people agree with what he says and the church begins and, and then this is the church he's writing to. They became Christians. And in verses 1 to 3, this is what he says about them. <clears throat> As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live, etc., etc. Verse 3, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving or objects of wrath. You see, Paul wants them to know about their past. But it's not just their past. You notice how Paul writes? It's really important, I think. Really important when we're talking to people who've become Christians. Notice how he writes. It's not just their past. First part of verse 3, all of us. By definition, that includes the Apostle Paul, and it includes you and I. Paul isn't kind of looking down his nose with condescending self-righteousness and saying, I've been a Christian for years, and you're really, but you were really bad. He's including himself, all of us. One writer says this, that Paul is giving the biblical diagnosis of fallen human beings in fallen society everywhere. This is our past. Don't really care, Paul would say, how decent you thought you were. Don't really care if you were brought up with wealth and well-educated and highly achieving in your work. It's not the point. The point is, whoever you were, whoever you are, this is what you were. Dead in your transgressions and sins, etc., etc. Now, let's hold on, hold on a minute, be careful here. <coughs> Paul is not drawing our attention to the past because he wants to leave us in the past. Be careful of that. He's diagnosing our past so that we might marvel at what God has done to rescue us. That's what he's doing. This is what the New Testament so often does, isn't it? It shows us the pit that we were in so that we can marvel at the rock upon which we now stand. It doesn't leave us in the pit. That's why the dominant emotion of the Christian should be joy and praise and not guilt and misery. But we must see the past. We must never forget the past because the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus only makes sense in the context of this. So let me ask you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. You were dead. Do you know that? You were dead. We're familiar with the idea of death. Death is a hopeless state. It is a state that a person can do nothing about. I can raise myself from sleep. Even when I went to bed, I was one in the morning. 
last night. I can get up this morning. I can raise myself from sleep. I can even, if necessary, raise myself from serious illness. But not death. I can't do that. In our day, materialism is our tutor. And for the materialist, physical death is a disaster. Dare I say, the the final nail in the coffin. But the New Testament shock, and it is a shock for those of us who have drunk deeply from the well, all of us, of materialism, even without realising it, and we have. The shock is this. Physical death is nowhere near as serious as spiritual death. Physical death is just a sign. It's a warning to us of the seriousness of spiritual death. Every funeral I go to, I go to at least two a week. Every funeral I go to, every family that I see, at times of bereavement, that there should be a a sign hanging over the service or hanging over the home that says, will you see the sign? Physical death is a sign of spiritual death. The sign that says you're in trouble with God. Spiritually, you've had it. And it's in this physical, this, sorry, this helpless state, Paul then says, that we were <coughs> helpless under the influence of powerful forces. Do you see what he says? In verse 3, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature, following its desires and thought, you see, in those days in the past, come back to the past with me, you could do nothing about these things. You followed the ways of the world. You were dead in your transgressions and sins, and you were unable to be discerning about the standards of a lost world. Do you ever get frustrated that people who are older and have lived lives of deep morality, but maybe not Christian, uh, that they see their grandchildren and their children behaving in a totally different way in which they would say immoral, but all they can say is, well, that's what they do these days. You see, it's like, we can't discern the, the, the ways of the world. We can't discern the dangers of the things going on around us because we were dead. And then we followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. The devil is real. He's the father of lies. We're reflecting on fathers today, aren't we? <coughs> God is our heavenly, loving, heavenly father. We've heard so clearly about that. The devil is the father of lies. And Paul says, before you were a Christian, when you were dead in your sins, you followed the ways of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. That is, I couldn't be discerning about the the lies I was being told about myself and the lies I was being told about the world around me. I didn't know. And then he says, I followed the cravings of my sinful nature. That is, <coughs> my own natural state was pulling me further and further away from God and his ways. And I was powerless to fight back. See, all of this is your past. Dead in transgressions and sins. And what did it all mean? Well, at the end of verse 3, it meant this. We were by nature objects or deserving of wrath. And that is, because of my sin, because of my disobedience, God's positional relationship towards me was one of wrath and anger and antagonism. That's where I was. Now, why is Paul putting this here? 
Well, I think it's simply this. Paul wants these people to be a constructive influence in the church. He wants them to build the unity of the church. He wants them not to damage the unity of the church. What is, that, what is it that damages the unity of the church? Often it is the parading of egos and the exercising of self-importance that destroys relationships. But you see, Paul would say, how can I behave with anything other than total humility when I know where I've come from? How can you parade your ego? How can you exercise self-importance? How can you damage the church by doing those things when I've so clearly reminded you where you've come from? You get this stuff, don't you, that's said about famous people. You sometimes wonder whether the things that people say are true, but you hope it is. When they say, well, yes, he's really famous now and really rich. Uh, They were saying it about Joe Hart on the radio this morning, but he remembers where he's come from. He's still the bloke from around the corner. Still pops home and has a drink with his mates in the pub where he used to go when he was younger and not famous and rich. You see, he remembers where he's come from. You see, if I don't remember my past, I might damage the church. But remembering where I've come from will help me. Here's the second thing then. Not understanding what has changed will also endanger the church. You see, something has... (coughs) Excuse me. Something has um, happened. There's a bit of ice in here as well. That's very good. But nothing else. Um, (laughs) as far as I know Uh, something has happened to these people in this church something has happened to you if you're a Christian something by definition has happened to everybody who names Christ as Saviour and Lord and here's the point that Paul will get to in verses 4 to 9 something has happened that you had nothing to do with at all that's going to be his key nothing to do with it You've got it in verse 4 to 9. Let's get to the heart of what is said in those verses by asking a few questions. Firstly, why did God do this? Look at verse 4. Because of his great love for us. Literally, it's even more emphatic than that. It says something like the great love with which he loved us. And what is it about God that made him act like this? Look at verse 4 again. He is rich in mercy. The wording means an expression of love and mercy that was unexpected. Think of the love or generosity that is shown to you on a birthday or Christmas or Father's Day. It is welcome, but it's not unexpected. So I want to ask you to put your hands up, but how many dads have been in a little bit of a mood today because you weren't quite given what you thought you deserved? There's always some. See? We get given gifts on these occasions. They are welcome, but they're not unexpected. But you see, what Paul is saying in verse 4 is that although it is within God's character to show this love towards us, it isn't within our state or within our rights to expect it. Let's rest in this. God has shown us great love Because he is rich in mercy, not because you are lovable. Because he is rich 
in mercy. So what has he done? Well, there are a number of things that are now <coughs> a reality for us. Uh, follow them with me in these verses 4 to 9. Uh, the key thing to note is the prepositions in Christ and with Christ. In other words, what Paul is saying is this. Our experience mirrors the experience of Christ. So verse 6, uh, Christ was raised, we've been raised. Uh, Verse 6, Christ was raised to the heavenly realms. We have been raised to the heavenly realms. In other words, we've been joined to him. It's an extraordinary thing that you see. Just get this in your minds. Because of what Jesus has done, God treats us like he treats Jesus. He was raised, we're raised. He is uh, ascends to the heavenly realms. We ascend to the heavenly realms. We're in him, we're with him. In other words, the the, the reversal of all that we saw in verses 1 to 3 has been decisively achieved. I wonder what someone says when you ask, or what you say when someone asks you, where do you live? I wonder what Paul would say with verse 6 in mind. Where do you live? Well, actually, in one sense, you see, you live in the heavenly realms. Why does Paul say that we live here? I mean, what are you talking about? We live here. But no, it's something, it's this, isn't it? Paul is meaning that something so decisive has happened, it has achieved an outcome that is so utterly certain that you can talk about it now as being real. We're not there yet, but we're on the way. The destination is certain. The work that Jesus done was finished. The effects of that work are beyond doubt. The effects of that work will last for all eternity. And when did, he, when did he do this? Look at verse 5. Again, keep the Ephesian context in your minds. When did he do this? He did it, verse 5, when we were dead in our transgressions. Was this kind of any, a kind of responsive action that God took? Did God see you all those years ago when you became a Christian or recently? Did he see a kind of spark and respond? Did he see that you were taking the initiative or did he take the initiative? You know the answer to all those questions. You were dead in your transgressions, verse 5. Uh, and then we come to these summary words, the words, the words that perhaps you know so well from Ephesians, verse 8. This is where the Paul comes to the kind of crescendo of his wonderful argument. Verse 8, it is by grace you've been saved through faith. I was reading yesterday about Martin Luther who was desperate to be <coughs> right with God. And yet the, the tragedy of religion is kind of uh, made clear here. Listen to Martin Luther's experience. To enter the monastery, which is where he went, was to enter a world of rules. There were rules for how and when to bow, rules for how to walk, how to talk, where to look and when, rules for how to hold one's eating utensils, Every few hours, the monks had to leave their tiny cells and make their way to a service in the chapel, starting with matins in the middle of the night, then another at six in the morning, another at nine, another at twelve, and so on. Otherwise, life was dedicated to climbing the steep ladder to heaven, wearing chafing underclothes, freezing in the winter cold, were thought to be especially pleasing to God. And Luther often took no bread or water for three days at a time. 
Luther lapped it all up. Yet the more he did, the more troubled he became. All those prayers in chapel, for example, they had to be meant from the heart. Every monk knew he would be judged for all those insincere our-fathers. But he really meant them enough. And what if he lagged? At some point, every monk found that illness or other duties prevented him from getting to chapel. Some were happy to pay for someone else to pray those missed prayers on their behalf. Not Luther. He uses weekends to catch up. Then there were all the other problems. Letting your eyes wander, laughing, poor singing. There were countless sins that needed to be absolved. And Luther was not going to cut corners where his salvation was at stake. Driven to confession, he would exhaust his confessors, taking up to six hours at a time to catalogue his most recent sins. Yet Luther was by no means unusual in this. Monks were urged to ransack their memories for any unconfessed sin. It was expected. It's by grace you've been saved. Goodness, when that man found out that that burden fell from his shoulders. Isn't religion dreadful? Religion is works. The gospel is grace. I remember being a teenager and someone saying, you know, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. And, <clears throat> and then reading a bit more and listening a bit more, and I'm thinking it's, it's more than that, isn't it? It's God's riches at Christ's expense to the undeserving. But then actually reading more and thinking more, it's more, isn't it? God's riches at Christ's expense to those who deserve the Opposite. That's what grace is. Because he is rich in mercy, because of his overwhelming love towards us. And what does this mean, you see, again? What does this mean in Ephesians? Well, Paul says, look, verse 9, not by works, so that no one can boast. We do boast, don't we? I have a theory about men. I'm a man, so I can pick on men. Um, I have a theory about men. Uh, when you talk to young men, they tell you how important they're going to be. When you speak to middle-aged men, they quickly tell you how important they are. And when you speak to older men, they quickly tell you how important they used to be. The men are a bit like that. You, you listen to conversation, listen to yourself sometimes. I mean, we're not all like that, but some of us are. Uh, you almost can't help it. I need to tell you how important I am. I need to boast. Well, see, why does Paul put these verses in Ephesians? Well, it's clear, isn't it? You can't boast... If you're going to be a constructive influence and not a destructive influence in the church, then you can't boast. There can't be any pride in being a Christian. You didn't do anything. But yet every church, I'm sure yours is the same from time to time, is affected by people who think they should be in this position, but they're in that position, or think they should sit here when someone else is sitting there. I remember our mother going to... Um, some kind of big service in Norwich Cathedral uh, uh, where there was a big procession about to take place from the back. And when she walked in slightly late, that's where Ben gets it from, uh, she... Um, well, when she walked in slightly late, people were actually fighting at the back. There was, there was pushing and shoving because people wanted to be in a procession in the cathedral. The nearer the back you are, the more important you are because the bishop goes at the back. People were pushing and shoving to be as near as they possibly could to the back. You see, we laugh, but those kind of things happen in church, don't they? I should be this, I should be that. No one said thank you to me this morning. You see, we're all the same. We have all of this stuff going on in our heads. And Paul says, stop, stop, stop. You didn't do anything. Pride and self-centeredness are not part of the game because it was all done for you in Christ. 
No pride, no self-congratulation. Don't damage the church. That's his point. (coughs) And then thirdly and uh, and quickly, uh, not understanding my future will also damage the church. Look at verse 10. (coughs) Verse 10 tells us about our present, our future. What does it mean to be a Christian? We are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. You see, this is amazing. I was an object of wrath. Verse uh, 3 Now I am an object of grace. But what about the future? Well, the new life has got to be expressed. And the expression, the living of the new life, proves the existence of the new life. We are God's workmanship. Again, drive this point home. I'm not a self-made man. I have no right to boast. God's handiwork. I'm a God-made man. And the good works will be spoken of as this letter develops. They will be all to do with living in a way that proves the power of God as he brings totally different people into his church and as we love and unite under Christ's rule. But the point is this, you see, God didn't raise us in Christ and seat us with Christ to then return us to the stinking pit of self-centered living that behaves as if the world revolves around me. That's not why he saved me. See, that just damages human relationships. God saved me for good works. And as the letter progresses, find out for yourself. Go and read it. They are selfless works. They are works of self-sacrifice. They are works that put other people first. That build the church. So that when the devil sees, he thinks, I've had it. But you see, Paul says, no, 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 look, look. It's all of God. This is who you were. Never mind them. You were the same. It's all been done for you. You didn't do anything to do to achieve this. And this is why you've been saved. Give up all of that stuff that puts yourself on a pedestal. All of the stuff that damages human relationships. Shove it all out of the way. Unite in Christ with whoever he brings amongst you. Love them, serve them. Put them first and not yourself. And as the devil watches, he thinks, goodness, this God is so powerful, I've had it. What are you saying? So if you don't understand where you've come from, you might damage the church. If you don't understand the change that God made, you might damage the church. And if you don't understand the nature of the new life that he's called you to, then you might damage the church. We don't want that, do we? Church is a great gift. We want to build it and contribute to what God is doing. Let's pray together for a moment. Lord Jesus, we thank you that in other parts of the Bible we're told that you bought the church with your blood. And we have no right uh, to be proud, no right to be boastful. Help us to take ownership of what Paul says about our past. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the great change, the greatest change that can happen to any person that you have affected because of God, who is rich in mercy, through your cross. We thank you that you have called us to be people who do those good works, not religious works, but good works of serving your people. (coughs) In all of this, we pray for the church here in Lim, for our church.
in Winchford, for every gospel church throughout the world, that we might achieve the purposes for which you established the church, that the devil might see, be reminded of his past defeat at the cross of Calvary, and be reminded of his future destruction when Jesus returns again in glory. So honour your name amongst us, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.